Well, good morning. It is a joy to be with you again. I'm glad you had me back. That's a good sign, I suppose. What a, what a wonderful time of worship. You know, Jonathan Edwards, uh, he was one of our early American uh, fathers, lived in the colonies. And he's probably the greatest mind America has ever produced. He lived during the Great Awakening in the colonies in the 1700s. And he talked about the Lord Jesus. And he said, in Christ is an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. And what he meant by that was Christ is everything that we need. He, in fact, he said that, that we long for greatness, but we're weak. And isn't that true? None of us aspire to mediocrity. In our hearts, we want greatness. But we're weak and we're broken and we're weary and we're worn out because we're sinners. And so he said, in Christ is this admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. You know what he is? He's strength in our weakness. He's gentleness when we've gone astray. He is love for us in the midst of being unloved. He is holiness in the midst of our sinfulness. In him is everything that we need and in him is everything that we desire. And the good news of the gospel is that because of his finished work, we are in him and so we have all of this. This morning, I just wanted to bring to you Ephesians chapter 1, and I want to just go through verses 15 to 23. I know it's a number of verses, but I wanted you to see this prayer from the Apostle Paul for the church. And I want to start, I actually want to take the time to read the whole chapter to you. Beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he's blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. 
for this reason. Because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that's named. Not only in the age, this age but also in the one to come. And he has put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. What a word. I don't know if you noticed it, but you have in this passage the Christ-centeredness of God the Father. Throughout this passage, Paul is referring to the Father's work of glorifying himself, of choosing a people, of sending his Son to get these people, of then pouring out his Spirit to seal these people so that they have a guarantee of their inheritance, and it brings to Paul's mind a prayer for them that they would understand certain things that are true of them because they're in Christ. And the whole reason that Paul says that the Father does this in verse 11 is that he's going to sum up everything in the Lord Jesus. In other words, Christ is going to be Lord of all. Things in heaven, things on earth, everything's going to be summed up in him. And so Paul prays that, that this Ephesian church would understand the reality of who they are in Christ over 14 times in this chapter. It talks about us being in Christ, in him, in the beloved. And all of these benefits that we have if we have put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ... And, and he says in verse 15, for this reason, I bow my knee. Paul loved the church because the head of the church is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the church that he's going to say in chapter 5 that the Lord Jesus purchased with his own blood that is the bride of Christ. That he is washing with the water of the word to present her without spot or wrinkle, or any blemish before the Father. And I love the church, and I love the fellowship of local churches we have in the Bay Area. I love that I've grown up in these churches. I love the fact that I've been privileged to be a part of all of these churches and fellowship with them and partner with them for the sake of the gospel. That this area of America that I love, that I've grown up with, would see the gospel go forth with power then we would see our loved ones saved and delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son. And I love the church because the church is exhibit A of what God the Father is doing to sum up all things in Christ. Do you want to see how things are put under the Lord Jesus? The Father says, look to the church. This is exhibit A of what I'm doing to sum up all things in my Son. And this is glorious. To be a part of this church that Christ loves is to be a part of a mission and a plan and a design of the Father that's been from eternity past 
This isn't plan B. This isn't God's second choice. This is what he purposed and planned before the foundation of the world. And so where we are this morning, July 26, 2015, sitting here in Hercules, California, gathering together to praise our Father and praise the Son and praise the Spirit, the reason we're here is for the sake of Christ's glory and for the good of the church. This is a wonderful message that we need to hear this morning. This morning, what the Father wants you to see more than anything is He wants you to see Christ in His glory. He wants you to get a glimpse of the glory of Jesus and see Him as all-sufficient to meet all of your needs. We sang about it. We cried it out. Jesus, walk with me. That is the reality of what we need this morning. And the Father wants you to know this. He wants you to know who you are in Christ, who you are in the Lord Jesus, so that you will walk and live out of who you are, not who you were. And so Paul prays for them. He prays for this church. And this prayer, he wants them to see certain things. And I love how the Apostle Paul prays. It should be a model of our prayer. He begins in verses 15 and 16 with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for sovereign grace in the lives of believers. He says, for this reason, because I heard of your faith. I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I heard of your love toward all the saints. And so I do not cease to give thanks for you. Remembering you in my prayers. Paul perhaps had not yet been to Ephesus. Commentators are divided on this, but Paul had perhaps, when he wrote this, not yet been to Ephesus, and so he was writing to a people he had not visited. We know it's for sure true with Colossae, which he wrote at the same time. He had not visited Colossae, which was in the Lycus Valley, just about 30 miles east of Ephesus. But here he says, I've heard of something about you. I've heard of something that's true of you. You have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you have the evidence and the fruitfulness of that faith is that you love all the saints. And so what I do is I do not cease to give thanks for you. You see, the cause of Paul's thanksgiving is their faith and love. And their faith separates them from a pagan culture. They were in Ephesus. They were in a metropolitan city on the coast. We know what that's like. We got one just across the way. And this church at Ephesus had been separated from the pagan culture such that it was impacting the coppersmiths and their idol manufacturing businesses. And he says, I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is a great joy for me to tell you, Valley Bible as a church, that all my life, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I've heard of it. I grew up hearing Pastor Steve Fernandez speak of the faithfulness of believers at Valley Bible Church. I've served for 10 years alongside Pastor Frank Griffith who's spoken of the faithfulness of Valley Bible Church and their love for the Lord Jesus Christ. When I have lunch with Pastor Phil... I hear him speak 
of how wonderful this church is and the work that God has done in you and given you a a faith in Christ in the midst of great sorrows, in the midst of great trials. And that is to the praise of His glory. That is something that causes me to give thanks because I know that here, here the gospel is going forth and is being proclaimed and Christ is being exalted. And he says, I've heard of this. And then I've heard of your love toward all the saints. And this love, if their faith separates them from a pagan culture, their love unites them together. And it doesn't just say love some of the saints. You know how it is. There's some saints that you just want to sit on the other side of the auditorium. But he says, I've heard of your love toward all the saints. I've heard of your love for all the saints. You know, it doesn't take any special skill to be a critic. It doesn't. You can just read the comments section of any news article or blog on the internet. It doesn't take any special skill to be a critic. It takes the power of God to love all the saints, though. It takes the Spirit's power in us to love people who are unlovely. But you want to know how that happens is you look to the cross and you see that God the Father loved you and gave you a son when you were unlovely. And you were an enemy and you were a rebel and you wanted nothing to do with him. You looked in the mirror and said, yes, your majesty. You were the king of your life. And you wanted nothing to do with God and he loved you and gave you a son. And if you're having a hard time loving others, you need to look to the cross And see how much you've been loved. So he says, I've heard of this. This is what we need to see. To see other Christians clothed in a righteousness not their own. The righteousness of Christ. And to encourage them on this basis to be more of what they should be. Powerfully communicates the heart of Jesus. Paul told the church at Corinth, you know, I used to look at people according to the flesh. What he meant by that was I was a Jew. And you were Gentiles, and so you were less than dogs, and I was a racist. He said, I also looked at Jesus according to the flesh, which to him what he meant was Jesus was a curse word. He was a blasphemer, and he deserved to die. And Paul said, I tried to stamp out the church of God. I was the chief of sinners, but I found grace. So he told the church at Corinth, I don't look at anybody according to the flesh anymore. I look at people through the cross. And that's what we need to do. We need to look at people through the cross. We're no better than anybody else. We're sinners saved by grace. And so we have here Paul giving thanks for this church, for the sovereign grace that has been evidenced in their lives. They now have faith in Christ and they love other Christians. All the saints. They love them. This is what it means in Ephesians 4 to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Because he says walk in unity. Because we have one God and one spirit. So Paul gives thanks for them. 
verses 15 and 16. And then he intercedes for them. In verses 17 to the the first part of verse 19, he intercedes that God's sovereign purposes would be accomplished in his people. Let me read it to you. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, verse 16, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. He says, you need to know some things, and I'm going to pray for you that you would understand some realities that are true about you. He says three things here that you need to know are already true because of who you are in Christ. Three realities. First, he prays in verse 17 that the Father would give the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of wisdom, in order to know him better through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's kind of a long thing, but he says, he prays that the Father would give them the spirit of wisdom so that they would know him. And the way to know him, Scripture says, is to know the Son Because we see the Father. If we see the Son, we see the Father. That's what Jesus said. He says, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, this God is the one who's blessed us in Christ. And we ought to praise Him for these blessings. And then He's called the glorious Father, the Father of glory. He's the one who is full of glory, all glory and power. And He reveals this glory in His Son over and over again. Growing up, I heard Steve Fernandez speak of two S's, the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. He is supreme. He is high and lifted up. He is glorious. Steve would say he's to be placarded before our eyes. He's also sufficient. He's everything that we need. We don't need anyone else or anything else. We need Christ And if we have Christ, that's enough. And so the Father, who's the glorious Father, reveals Himself through His Son, who Paul's going to say is the head of the church, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. This Jesus, who everything is going to be summed up under Him, this is how we see the Father. And our goal should be to see the Father. He's the glorious Father. And Paul prays for this church that the Holy Spirit would be given to them so that they would have wisdom to know the Father. The Holy Spirit is the source of wisdom and revelation. And He's the one who's going to enlighten the eyes of the heart. What a picture. That your heart would have eyes. But we know what He means by that. The eyes are where we take in information. The eyes are where we see things and we process things and absorb things. And he says, you need eyes not of the mind but of the heart. And you need the eyes of your heart enlightened to see the glory of God the Father in the face of Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus said this in John 17, 3. This is eternal life. That we would know God the Father and Jesus whom he sent. This is what it means to have life is to know the Father, to see the Father, to see Him for who He really is. 
This is what eternal life means. It's not just everlasting life and duration. It is a quality of life of drawing near to God the Father through the Son, being with Him forever and knowing Him. And we can draw near because He's drawn near to us in Christ. And what I love about this prayer here is this isn't something that we need to have in the future. This is something that is already true of us as Christians. This is a reality that's already true, but you know what? We're prone to forget, aren't we? We're prone to forget this. That's why we need the eyes of the heart enlightened. We, we don't feel that God is working towards us or in our lives or with us. I think three reasons why is we're not aware first of the blinding, deadening power of sin. And we're not aware of the fact that God is at work right now conquering sin in our lives. You know, Paul reminded the church that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. But doesn't it seem sometimes that we forget that? We think maybe God took a vacation. He's on break and he's not actually at work finishing what he started in us. Another reason is we're not aware of the magnitude of demonic power that's coming against us at all times. We have an enemy, and he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he would devour. And he shoots fiery arrows at us. And he is trying to destroy us. But you know what? Greater is the one who's in us than the one who's in the world. And the reality is we have a God on high and we have the Lord Jesus Christ who's seated at his right hand, who's our high priest, who's interceding for us. These things are already ours. This isn't something we have to obtain as Christians. This is something we have. A third reason, we don't consider fully what's happened to Jesus and his present role in the universe. It's as if we forget he's on the throne and exalted. We somehow think that somebody else is in charge. This is God's universe. And he's appointed a man, one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. And he's currently reigning and ruling and exalted on high, seated at the right hand of the Father. And the Father is placing all things under his feet and summing up all things in him. In our lives, in the lives of the church, in the lives of people across this world, this is what the Father is doing. And so we need to look to the church. Exhibit A. We need to look to the lives of our brothers and sisters. We need to speak the truth to one another. We need to remind one another of what's true in Christ. So that we don't believe the lies of the devil and the lies of our own heart. The lies of this world system. These things are already ours. I love to read Pilgrim's Progress. We've got a children's version and an adult version and an old English version and a new English version. And we read it to our kids all the time and talk about it. And we've listened to it on audiobook. And, and there's, a, there's a, one of the stories there when Pilgrim is along his journey, he faces the giant of despair. And the giant of despair picks him up and takes him and, and slams him into Doubting Castle. And he's there for a long time. And he keeps trying to find a way out and he, and he sees no way out. 
And days and days and days this happens that he's locked in Doubting Castle by giant despair. And then he remembers. After he prays, he remembers. And he says this. This is what Pilgrim says. What a fool I am. I lie thus in a stinking dungeon when I may as well walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise that will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. And he takes the key out and he walks through the dungeon cell door unlocks it. He walks through the door of the castle, unlocks it, and he walks on his way. Have you ever been entangled in a quest for something more? More of Jesus, more of the Holy Spirit, more power, more blessings, more spirituality. You say, man, I just wish I had something more. Then I could be a great Christian. But as it is, I'm just in this doubting castle we would do well to listen to the words of John Bunyan. We have promises that are sure, that are steadfast. We have hope, and the hope in the Bible is not a pipe dream. It is not wishful thinking. It is an earnest expectation that all of God's promises in Christ are yes and amen. And He will fulfill everything He's promised. 2 Peter 1.3 says his divine power has given us what? Everything pertaining to life and godliness. And it's through these exceeding and precious promises. And so Paul, when he's praying here, he says, I pray that God would give you first a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. See, what you need is you need to remember who you are in Christ and who God is. He's on the throne. Second, you need the eyes of your heart enlightened to know the reality of what is true, what is going on behind the scenes. And he says here that you would know this. Verse 18, the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. Now notice this is not the hope of our calling. This is the hope of his calling. His calling he called you. He chose you in chapter 1. In Christ before the foundation of the world, He called you in time to be a Christian. He poured out His Spirit to open your eyes to see the glory of Christ so that you would turn and repent. And He has called you for a purpose and a hope. And it will never disappoint. And Paul says, I pray that your eyes would be enlightened to the hope of His calling. Every one of you, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened to know the hope of his calling. Do you need hope this morning? Are you in a hopeless situation? Do you look at your horizon and the only thing that fills it is despair? You need the hope of the Father's calling. You need to get your eyes off of this world and onto the Lord and know ultimate reality and remind yourself of what's true in Christ. The Father is summing up all things in Him, verse 11. The world is the Lord Jesus's, and we are His forever. And our God is just and gracious. He's sovereign and saving. And you know the significance of hope when you hear the voices of this world, and they don't have it. Our hope is life in a new heaven and a new earth. 
Our hope is the glory of God. Our hope is the appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the fact that we're going to be with him. And if we've been raised with Christ, we need to get our eyes on Christ. He says, secondly, you need the eyes of your heart enlightened to know another thing, he says in verse 18. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, you might think this is tied to the hope that your inheritance that you have waiting for you, that's, that's undefiled, that's reserved, moth isn't going to eat it and destroy it, rust isn't going to wear it away, thieves aren't going to break in and steal. And that's what he had talked about in verse 14, that the Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we receive it. But that's not what he's talking about here. Notice he says, what is the riches of the Father's glorious inheritance in the saints. Do you see that there? It's His glorious inheritance. Who's the Him? The Father. Now think about this, this reality. You, Christian, are the Father's inheritance. So when He sends His Son a second time to go get His elect, the Son is going to bring Him and present Him back to the Father. And it says in Hebrews chapter 2, Here I am and the children you've given me. What a story. The Father chose us in eternity past, and He gave us to His Son. And the Son came 2,000 years ago, and He died for us, and He purchased us, and He ransomed us, and He delivered us out of the domain of darkness and brought us into His kingdom. And the Son went back, and He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and He's waiting until the day when the Father says, Go get my inheritance. And the humbling thing to me about this is that the Father's value of us as His inheritance, He values us with the value of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not because of anything good in us, of course. But think about this. He so loved the world that He gave a Son. And if He didn't spare His Son, how will He not with Him freely give us all things? And he purchased us so that we would be with him forever. He wants to be with us. I know that surprises some of you. He has drawn near to us so that we would draw near to him. And once again, this is what's already true of us. This isn't something that is true of us when we finally achieve the second story of the Christian life. We're on the upper deck of the cruise ship. You know, we've, we've achieved this holy standard that only a few select do. No, this is true of every Christian. We need to know who we are as God sees us. We are His. He owns us. Revelation says His name is on us. He has rights over us, but it also means that we are dearly loved. We are highly esteemed in Christ. And we're seated in the heavenlies in Christ. Paul's going to go on to say that the Father so loved us, we would be content, I think, to be a janitor in heaven. And he says, no, you're going to be my children, my sons and my daughters. I'm going to adopt you into my family. I'm going to give you a place at the table. This is who we are in Christ. This is who you need to remember you are in Christ. 
Because tomorrow morning you're going to wake up and those trials are still going to be there. You're going to wake up and those same bills are going to be in front of you. Those same heartaches, those same wandering children, that spouse and that trouble is still going to be in front of you. And you need to remember who you are in Christ and who you are as God the Father sees you. But that's not all. He saves the greatest for last. In fact, he puts it at the the last of the list and he emphasizes the importance of this third thing in verse 19. He says, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? He emphasizes the importance of this power that's at work in us by placing it last in the list, by using the expression immeasurable greatness. You can't even measure it. And then what he does is he piles up words. He exhausts the dictionary of words for power in the Greek, for strength and work. He uses four nouns and one verb. And he says this, what is the immeasurable or surpassing greatness of his power, it's the Greek word dunamis, toward us who believe. These are in according with the working, the energeia of the strength, kratos, of his might, iskus. He uses all the words in the Greek dictionary for power and he says, this is what is already at work in your life. And you need to have the eyes of your heart enlightened to know this. This is what you need to know. And it's often like a spectrum of light, like infrared or ultraviolet that's not visible to our eyes. We can't see it, but we know it's there. Paul prays the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened to know that it's there. This power. Well, what kind of power is it? He says, it's resurrection power. It's the greatest kind of power there is. In fact, his his last part of this prayer, it flows from intercession right into adoration and praise. Verses 19, the second half of 19 and 20, he says, or all the way to the end to 23, he says, What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he, the Father, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him as right hand in the heavenly places. Now, when Paul speaks of this powerful act of God, he's not talking about it's the most powerful in the sense of he's omnipotent. So it's not that it's degrees of difficulty. What he's getting at is that this power is the most glorious. It is the most revealing of God's acts and works. And so therefore it is the most revealing of God himself. Of who he is. His character. You see this is what he means by it being great is not that it's powerful in degree of difficulty, it's that it's great in terms of glorious, of weightiness, of being wonderful and magnificent, something we should behold and look at, is that he raised Jesus Christ from the dead, this power to overcome sin and death. And he says in Ephesians 2, 5, that just as Christ was raised from the dead, even when we were dead, In our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we've been saved. So it's already at work in our lives if we're a Christian. We've been raised from the dead. It's sovereign 
power that places Jesus above all rulers and forces of this world. You see, this is our hope. This is what we need to remember is that though Satan comes against us, there's one who's been seated at the right hand of the Father that is, what does he say here? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. He's above all of those satanic forces. He's above all angelic realms. He is above everything, above every name that's named, not just in this age, but in the age to come. And turn over to chapter 2, verse 6. I want you to see this. What does he say? He says, he not only raised us from the dead, but in verse 6, he raised us up with him, with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So, so Christ is above these powers. We've been seated with Christ in the heavenlies. So we are now seated above these powers. So when he gets to chapter 6, turn over there, verse 12. He says, you know this passage well. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Guess what? We're above them. So when we battle them, we are not going to be defeated. Not ultimately. We may suffer setbacks. We may have temporary losses. And that's why he says, put on the armor of God, which is equivalent in Romans 9 to saying, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, because in him we have all these things. And so we put on Christ, and Christ is seated above them, and we're above them, and so Satan is a defeated foe. We need to remember this. We are so prone to forget this. He says, the resurrection of Jesus proclaims he lives, and that forever. The exaltation of Jesus proclaims he reigns, and that forever. And he's ruling and reigning right now. And we're going to rule and reign with him. In fact, in God's mind, in the Father's mind, we're already seated in the heavenlies in, with Christ. We're already kings and princes and a royal priesthood and a holy nation and a people of his own possession who are called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once we were not a people, but now we've become the people of God. See, these powers back in chapter 1, verse 22, they're not simply inferior to Christ. They are subject to him. They do what he says. He is Lord of all. The Father put all things under his feet, the Son's feet, and gave the Son as head over all things to the church. And so Paul adores the Father for the resurrection of Christ, and Paul adores the Father for the exaltation of Christ. And then he adores the Father for placing Christ over all things, but particularly the church. He says he gave him his head over all things to the church. And that little phrase, to the church, it could be translated for the benefit of the church. The Father gave Christ his head over all things for the benefit of you and I, brothers and sisters. He did it because he loves us. 
He did it because he gave us a son. And if he'd not spare a son, how will he not with him give us all things? This is why the Father is doing it. The universe, the cosmos, it's all being bent in new directions for the good of the church, the bride of Christ. He's going to make a new heavens and a new earth. Why? So that we can live with him forever on this new earth. In his presence, what was lost in Eden will be restored in the new Jerusalem. Not only that, the church is the means by which he's filling the universe with his glory. What do I mean by that? There is no other institution on this planet that has the promise or the power that it will be salt and light in this world. We are the means he uses to fill all things, Ephesians 4.10 says. The church, through the church, the Father is filling all things. Christ is able to fill all things because he's ruling all things. That is, he asserts himself and his rights as fully as he pleases through the church in the world. Think about it this way. Think of Jesus as a king who's ruling over territories that not all of them are fully subdued to him. There's pockets of resistance. But he is ruler and sovereign. And one day he will accomplish his purpose in every territory, in every realm. There will be no more rebellion. There will be no more pockets of resistance. And we don't yet see that. But what we see is that Christ has been raised and seated to the right hand of the Father. And there's coming a day when he's going to be preeminent in every nook and cranny of the universe. Even the outer darkness of hell will be filled with his authority and his power and his wrath and the knowledge of his wisdom. God means to fill the universe with the glory of his son. And he's going to do it through the church by putting the church on display as the embodiment of his son. I mean, think about this responsibility we have as the church. That when people walk in these doors and they see us, they ought to see the Lord Jesus Christ in us because he is our head and we are his body. What does that mean? Back to what he saw in verse 15. I give thanks to God the Father because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints. Isn't this what Jesus said? If you love me, you'll obey my commands. And his commands are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. We are exhibit A of what God the Father is doing to sum up all things in Christ and to put him on center display as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so, what does this mean for us? This morning it means when we ask, Lord, is there a power that can save me from the bondage that I have to my anger, to my pride, to my depression? Is there a power that can liberate me from bondage to, to this sin or, or, or that sin? Is there a power that can get me through the trial I'm enduring now, the, the temptation that I'm facing? Is there a power or am I just a pawn in the world of powerful forces? Will Satan devour me? Will I believe his lies? The answer is found in the reality that the Father raised Jesus from the dead and exalted him to his right hand. And he's granted him to rule over everything for the sake of his people. And we're in Christ. And so this power is already at work in our lives. 
May we have the eyes of our hearts enlightened to see all of the ways in which the Father is preserving and protecting us and working His power towards us. We will never pray effectively if we don't believe that God has the power to answer prayer. We'll never live the Christian life confidently unless we believe that God protects us and guides us and completes what He started in us. And so when you doubt, when you're weary and worn, when you're like a bruised reed or a smoldering wick, the Father would point you one place. He would say, look at my son. Look to my son. In him. In him is everything you need. In him is a gentle shepherd who will not break a bruised reed, who will not put out a smoldering wick, whose yoke is easy and his burden is light. Look to my son. Look to the one who forgives sin. Look to my son who is a perfect high priest, who is completely cleansing you from the stain of your sin. Look to my son who purchased you with his blood. Look to my son who was the perfect satisfaction of my holy standard. And on the cross, all of the Father's wrath was poured out on him so that you could go free and live in confidence in the Father's presence. The Father would say, look to my son because you've been declared righteous in him. You've been called a saint in him. The Father made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Look to Jesus. He's all sufficient. He's what you need this morning. He's what you need tomorrow morning and every morning. The Father would say, remind one another of this. Encourage one another with these words. Preach the gospel to one another. Preach the realities to one another because we're all so prone to forget. We need to hear it over and over and over again. We need to rehearse it. Sunday mornings, the gathered church ought to be a time when we rehearse the gospel in song, in preaching, in prayer, in the Lord's table, remembering Him, in giving, knowing that though He was rich, yet for our sakes He became poor so that through His poverty we might become rich. In everything we do, we should see Christ. Oh, I love the church. I praise God for this lampstand here and how He has been faithful to you all these years. And I know he's got things ahead of you. He's got work for you to do in this community. He's got work for you to do among your family. He's made you a missionary right here in this zip code. And we know we have a whole Bay Area that needs Christ. And so may the Lord use us. May the Lord work his might through us. And may we be the means by which the Lord Jesus is proclaimed and preached. Father... Do this work. Do it, Father. This is your work. We participate, but we know that you don't need us, but you delight to use us, Father. We are instruments in your hands. We are united to your Son. You have poured out your Spirit upon us. And so we are not alone. The Lord Jesus promised that he would be with us always, even to the end of the age. We are not alone. We are never alone. 
Father, remind your saints of this. Encourage them. Bind up the brokenhearted. Bring deliverance to those who are in bondage to sin. Father, would you save? Do this work in our midst today. Those who don't know you, those who refuse to bow the knee, would they bow their knee to Jesus as Lord and Savior this morning? Give their lives and their hearts to Him. Put their faith in Him. Oh, Father, we ask this for the sake of Your Son and His glory and His kingdom. Amen.